Our scripture for this morning's catechism lesson will come from John chapter 6. Of course, uh, Jesus is one of Jesus' most famous discourse about uh, the bread of life, which has uh, formed the backdrop for discussions about the Lord's Supper and communion in the church uh, since the age of the apostles. I will begin reading at verse 35 and uh, read a fair bit down to verse 59. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at uh, Capernaum. Uh, Dr. Godfrey, my old church history, used to say that that was uh, Christ's greatest church growth sermon because in the following verses we read that everyone but the twelve left him. So uh, it wasn't a popular message. uh, But we we saw last week in particular that, um, that eternal life is promised there many, many times. And Jesus uses a lot of expressions in parallel. He who believes on me, he who comes to me, he who feeds on me. All of these are the ones who receive eternal life. 
And that is uh, one of the things that our, our catechism points to as a way to understand this sacramental language that we find subsequently in the church. Uh, what it means to feed on Jesus in the supper is to come to him, to believe on him, trust in him, and receive uh, the blessings. So we'll turn now to our catechism. It can be found in the back of our red uh, Trinity Psalter hymnal, which is on the ends of your pews on page 885. And we're on Lord's Day 29, questions 78 and 79. We'll have one more Sunday on the Lord's Supper next week, in particular looking at uh, our disagreement with the Roman Church about the Roman Catholic Mass. Uh, But this week, uh, we are looking at the, the nature of Christ's presence in the Supper. Let's read together. Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Question 79. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood, as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Well, in our outline in the bulletin, I flag uh, three sort of subtopics here on this understanding of transubstantiation. First, it's raised in question 78, the nature of sacramental language. Uh, Second, uh, what is the Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, which forms the backdrop, um, and the Lutheran teaching of consubstantiation, which forms the backdrop of of this lesson? And then third, what do we understand? What is our Reformed uh, teaching of real presence? So first, I want to talk a little bit about this expression here, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments that we find at the end of question 78. Um, sacramental language is figurative language. It's the language of figures. The scriptures everywhere speak both literally and figuratively. And the question for interpretation is always, should I understand this word, this verse, this idea in a literal or in a figurative manner? In a sacrament, as we have said earlier, um, uh, there is two things present. There is the sign, the visible sign, and the thing it signifies, the invisible spiritual reality. Uh, Belgic Confession, in its article defining sacraments, says they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible, 
by means of which God works in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Um, Also, our catechism started this section by defining sacraments. Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. So they explain the promise and they seal it to us. They make it real and confirm it to us. And this, the catechism continues, is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. And you will remember that last week I I pointed out that this teaching of assurance, that one sacrifice on the cross, this phrase is repeated again and again and again in this section and uh, for good reason. The sacrament is a means of grace used by God, used by the Holy Spirit uh, to teach and to confirm uh, the gospel promise to us. The author of our catechism in his commentary says, In all sacraments, when the names or properties of the things signified, so that would be Christ's one sacrifice on the cross, his body and blood broken and poured forth for us. When the, the name of the thing signified is attributed to the sign. In other words, when we say, this is my body broken for you. That's attributing the name of the thing signified to the sign. Ursinus continues, it does not signify the corporal presence of the things in the signs, but a correspondence between the sign and the thing signified, and a sealing of the things by their signs, and a union of these two things in their lawful use. One way to think of this is the sign and the thing signified are promised, uh, I'm sorry, are united by God's promise. God says, if I give you this bread in this supper, I am giving you Christ. And if you believe and trust that promise, you are receiving Christ. That's the character of sacramental uh, language. The visible thing is not the thing signified. It's a sign and a pledge of the thing signified. The point isn't that you get some stuff in the bread. (laughs) The bread and the wine. The bread and the wine relate to something that we do truly receive. Again, Christ's one sacrifice to accomplish on the cross. And our catechism to teach this way of sacramental language uses the only other option at hand, baptism, right? And it's a useful analogy. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood, it does not itself wash away sins. It is a divine sign and assurance of these things. So too, the holy bread of the supper does not become the body of Christ itself. That's not how they were designed to work. That's not how they were uh, instituted to work. And we'll go on and unpack that a little further, give some reasons and arguments uh, for that. If the sign is actually turned into the thing signified, it's no longer a sacrament. It's, it's just magic. I mean, literally, we have uh, the medieval mass and, and the words of institution, hocus corpus meum, you know, in all likelihood, the background for hocus pocus, right, in the English language. It was magical in its performance. And the idea was, you're getting some stuff that gives you eternal life, that gives you life. And one of the constant lines of Calvin and other reformers is, we weren't promised something to eat in the gospel. We're not promised food. We're promised Christ. We're promised life by faith alone. So, the second point here is, is what is the Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation? And it's summarized by the author of our catechism in his commentary, 
Um, Rome imagines that by virtue of the consecration, the bread is changed or converted into the body of Christ, the accidents only remaining. In other words, using Aristotelian language there, only the outward appearance of bread remains, but it is actually the body of Christ. Uh, This change they call transubstantiation. And the debate in the 16th century had uh, another vector, another position, that of consubstantiation, the coexistence of the body of Christ in, with, and under the bread. Uh, These two classes of persons equally boast, our author says, that they understand the words of Christ in their natural sense. Famously at the colloquy of Marburg in 1529 where Luther and Zwingli were trying to come to a united front in the Protestant faith and uh, they could not agree on the supper. And I don't agree with Zwingli on the supper, so I'm kind of on Luther's camp here. But the story is that he carved into the table, hoke es corpus meum. Jesus says, this is my body, it must be his body. So that's the, the primary argument. This is the natural sense of the language. Who are you to quibble with Christ and the Bible? Um, St. Augustine is actually regularly appealed to by Reformed in this debate. Um, I don't know that well. Maybe the Lutherans and the Catholics appeal to him as well. He wrote a lot of stuff, right? That's often the way the church fathers work as authorities. Uh, But Augustine said the only way to determine if scripture is to be taken in its proper or its figurative sense is to see if it can be properly referred to moral duty or to harmonize with true faith. And if this can't be done, we know it must be read figuratively. So he takes the Eucharist as an example of this uh, challenge of how we interpret Scripture. Do we interpret this, any particular text, figuratively or literally or properly in his language? Except ye eat the flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Christ seems to enjoin a shameful crime. Hence, it must be understood figuratively as teaching that we must partake of the passion of our Lord and call to mind that his flesh was wounded and pierced uh, for us. So, uh, uh, Augustine says, this has to be read figuratively. And it's not the only place in the Gospels that Christ speaks figuratively. He says, I am the vine, I am the gate, I am the way, I am the light, I am the door. And here in our text today, John 6, I am the bread of life. Right? He's, he's teaching a point, a figurative point. Um, one of the church fathers, Cyprian, wrote, When we drink of the cup... We hang to the cross, we suck the blood, and we place our tongues in the very wounds of our Redeemer. Cyprian is not speaking literally, right? Cyprian is speaking sacramentally about the sacrament. We become one with Christ's passion, we die with Christ, we sup with Him. Chrysostom uh, similarly speaks figuratively. Um, The body of Christ, which is in heaven, is placed on earth to our view, figuratively. So Ursinus continues in in looking at four different kinds of arguments. And I won't go through all of these arguments. And believe me, this was a hot and heavy debate. There were mutual gatherings between Lutherans and Reformed over the decades of the 16th century. And they continued to hammer this out for uh, well over a century into the 17th century. Um, But these, these four categories of arguments sort of explain why our catechism takes the time and energy to to reject this view. First of all, uh, the words and the circumstances of the supper itself. Ursinus says, Jesus' human nature, his body was sitting at the table. It wasn't lying on the table. So what is going on in that first Lord's Supper? Christ didn't break his body at the supper, he broke a loaf of bread. 
The bread didn't hang on the cross. You see, this bread wasn't turned into the body of Christ. Um, the New Testament, uh, the cup of my blood, this New Testament, is not drunk with the mouth. It is to be believed. What is the Testament? It is a promise to be believed. Is Christ's uh, blood and body uh, separated at this first supper? He, he stresses the, the unreality of that body of Christ, which must be true, if it is both sitting there and in the bread at the same time. And this comes back to one of the great overarching uh, theological arguments, really in a different category, but uh, the nature of Christ's humanity. It is real humanity like ours. Then he talks about the the arguments from the nature of sacraments. We've already talked about this a little bit. Um, Transubstantiation and consubstantiation are invented to fit a literal and proper reading of this one text. But a figurative way is an established way of reading Christ's sacraments. Um, All the sacraments signify the same thing. They did all eat the same spiritual meat, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, about those Old Testament saints. It's the same reality, Christ and his passion. Uh, from what's called the analogy of faith. You might have come across this. This is the third category of argument. Um, if you read older uh, Reformation literature, they'll refer to the analogy of faith or early church fathers. What are they talking about? They're talking about how we read the Bible so that it agrees with itself, so that it comports with itself. Uh, we read the clearer texts or the more obscure text in the light of the clearer text. If we know something to be true, we don't overturn it here for some obscure uh, person or purpose. So from the analogy or correspondence with other articles of the faith, uh, the, the central argument here is the true human nature of Christ. He has a human body like ours. Yes, it is glorified. And this becomes the epicenter of the debate. How does his body change when it enters glory? But uh, they cite then, consequently, Christ's ascension. This isn't just some uh, rationalist objection about the nature of bodies. Um, We are taught that Christ must go away in his farewell discourse. I must go away. We are uh, taught uh, that, uh, that, that we worship the Lord who is in heaven. And even in the teaching of the supper itself... We are taught that it portrays or we proclaim his death till he comes. Well, he comes from where? He's absent. So we celebrate and acknowledge on Ascension Day in the teaching of the doctrine of the Ascension, the genuine real absence of Christ, which is tied to his sending of the Holy Spirit. And then there are a whole series of arguments that come from scripture parallels. I've alluded to some of these already. Genesis chapter 17, when the the sacrament of circumcision is given to Abraham. Uh, Moses writes, or the Lord says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You see, in two parallel sentences, he says, This is my covenant, and this is a sign of the covenant. That's sacramental language. The covenant itself is not circumcision. The covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will be God to your children after you. Um, The lamb is called the Lord's Passover in the Passover feast. The Sabbath is called a covenant of God. These these are all figurative language. Uh, The blood of the New Testament is used in the same sense as the cup, right? We're not saying that the cup is the New Testament, but what it contains. And that signifies the blood of Christ. Uh, The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The argument of John 6. 
and to eat and drink in John 6, as we already saw, is to believe on him. Um, we could add, and Ursinus does add, and I won't read the uh, two pages of church fathers who weighed in on the nature and character of the supper. And I'll just uh, make reference to the fact, um, and if you want to see the quotes of the fathers, let me know, I'll happily send them to you. I'll, I'll reference the fact that um, it's often um, understood in sort of a popular conversation between Protestants and Catholics today, that Protestants innovated and abandoned a, a realistic understanding of the supper. And what's far more accurate is that there was always a lot of diversity in the history of the church and a lot of conversation around the character and nature of uh, this mystery. Uh, Tertullian, one early church father, says, The bread which Christ took and distributed among the disciples, he made his own body, saying, This is my body, that is, the figure of my body. Again, a lot of widespread understanding. Irenaeus, Clemens of Alexandria, Cyprian, uh, many quotes from Cyprian, the Council of uh, Nice, I need to double check my notes there, I'm not sure whether that's Nicaea or a different Council of Nice. Uh, Basil, Hilary, Gregory of Nazianzus writes, the figures of the body and precious blood of Christ. Ambrose, because we've been redeemed by the death of our Lord, we, being mindful thereof, signify in eating and drinking the flesh and blood of the Lord which were offered to us. The offering, this offering is a figure of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've also already uh, quoted from Augustine, uh, Chrysostom, uh, Theodoret, um, Macarius, a monk. The reason for this change, Theodoret writes, is manifest to those who have been initiated into divine mysteries. For he designs that those who partake of these divine mysteries should not look to the things which are seen, but on account of the change of the names, should believe the change which is made through grace. For he who called that which is naturally a body, wheat and bread, and also called himself a vine, honored the signs which are seen with the title of his body and blood. Not indeed by changing their nature, but by adding grace thereto. I give you bread, and if you trust my promise to receive me in this bread, you receive me. And that brings us uh, to the third point. Uh, the Reformed teaching of real presence. We'll pick this up a little bit next week. Um, we also talked a little bit last week. But it's important to realize, uh, when we reject transubstantiation, um, as Protestants, as Reformed Protestants, uh, many believe that we therefore have a low view of the supper. Many believe that we therefore think that nothing is objectively taking place. If it doesn't happen corporeally, bodily, materially, nothing happens. And that couldn't be further from the truth. What we teach in our Belgic Confession of Faith, what we teach in our catechism, is uh, that there is a real spiritual presence of Christ. I once had, uh, um, was invited to an evening uh, kind of conversation. They used, used to call these faith discussion dinners with a Roman Catholic interlocutor. And we were talking about the supper. And I said, when it comes to Luther and Zwingli about whether Christ is present in the supper, I side with Luther. He's present. He's spiritually present. And all their mouths dropped. They're like, what are you talking about? And I said, I don't, I'm not going to force anyone to adopt a particular philosophical understanding of how Christ is present. I'm not going to say you must understand it according to this Aristotelian set of categories or this way. It's a mystery. But Christ is made present to me. I am nourished by the death and resurrection, by the body and blood broken and poured forth of Christ. And that's something that's always important for us to remember. 
that we cherish the supper, that we celebrate it, that we appreciate it. Um, We don't oppose the presence of Christ or the objective power and significance and meaning of the supper. Tragically, of course, much of Protestant history has neglected the supper. That's not a 16th century event. I mean, if you look at the 16th century, we debated it for 100 years. We weren't exactly neglecting the Lord's Supper. Lutherans, Reformed, Roman Catholics. But through revivalism, through modernism, through anti-institutionalism and individualism, there has come a widespread neglect of the Supper um, that has affected a lot of evangelical Christians these days. And so in that, we can voice agreement with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, right? We can agree with them that the supper is at the center of the church, of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, And that's uh, what we want to focus on. Again, uh, this positive agreement uh, with those brothers and sisters who uh, we may hold to be an error about certain details of the Christian faith, even very important details And we celebrate this. Now let's go in prayer and ask that we might be faithful witnesses to this glorious truth. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice to call on your name. We rejoice to receive uh, that oil of rejoicing poured over our heads. The gospel gives us joy and peace. And a, a great portion of that is received in this meal. Bless us, dear Lord, this day. As we come confident of your promises, as we come looking away from ourselves, acknowledging our sin and guilt, and looking to Christ, the source of our life. We pray that you would bless us through your word this day. In Christ's name, amen.